ready to go? Sure. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the show. Uh, I'm your host, Kevin Hamm, and today I am joined by Ken Miller, who is running for governor of the state of Montana, and actually you're first in two ways with the show. You are the first Republican uh, to agree to be on the show, so it takes a lot of courage, and uh, you're the first uh, governor's candidate to be on the show. So welcome. Well, good. Well, thanks, Kevin. Well, you seem pretty harmless. I don't know that it's that big of a <laughs> bravery thing for on my part. Uh, obviously, you have not read my blog. <laughs> <laughs> so um, to start off with, uh, let's just start off talking about you. you. You're from Montana, obviously. Well, I was born in Colorado, actually. That's on, Montana. On a dairy farm. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's Midwest, you know, type of thing. They always say West, but uh, it seems like... Uh, we're the mountain region anyway, and, and a lot of similarities. My folks moved that dairy farm up to Joliet, south of Laurel, while I was still in school. Mm -hmm. So I've been in Montana a long time, and uh, from the, uh, the farm and ranch, why then my wife and I started doing construction, and then we got involved in manufacturing and retail furniture store and, and uh, several occupations, like most Montanans, have to do several things just to earn a living and raise a family. Right. So, obviously, I'm failing at my quest. Don't start the questions with so. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, being born in Colorado, I think, is actually a plus. I was born there as well. Um, you came to Montana. You grew up here. You've always been around the rural parts of it, uh, ranching, farming, that sort of stuff. And then you were a, if I'm correct, a bull rider. That's correct. Now, I did. I is was, this high school or? Uh, it was high school. It was started out Little Britches, uh, which is a Colorado-based. Uh, uh, you you can start writing. I forget. I think like at twelve or something. I didn't quite start that young, but um, and uh, then I I rode in high school some, and then uh, mostly amateur radio rodeo. I was never any good. I just really enjoyed it. Yeah, well, that's cool. So. Did you ever do the running clown stuff either? Or a little bit. Work? Actually, my clowning career ex uh, existed of helping at, at CSU in, in Fort Collins. They had a team, college team, and they had some bulls on campus. And so we would work the bulls, and I would actually, uh, I wouldn't call it clowning. It was more the bullfighting side of it just to help protect them when they were practicing. And that's so I did a little bit of that as well. That's very cool. I, don't, I know several people who have done it. But it's a very rarefied group of people. and yeah. You're saying there's not too many that's still living to tell about it? Is that what you're saying? No, but they walk really slow. <laughs> <laughs> um, one of the great, there's a quote on your site, and I'm going to screw it up a little bit, but it's the, the time being thrown from bulls prepared you tremendously for politics. And I would say that that is probably far more accurate this year than any other year before. How is it going from, you know, that's part of your background, obviously, and you've got the business background, which we'll talk about in a minute, but you know exactly what it's like to ride a bull. And you've seen what politics is like in Montana, and it is very much that wild bull. Are you will really willing to do this again? I am. I have such a huge passion because I believe this country is headed over a cliff, and we need good leaders to step up with the experiences, not necessarily have to have the bull riding experiences, but the business background, the legislative background, the agriculture background, the family background, and step up and, and try to return this country to what made it so great, and that being our, our constitution, our moral values, our, our heritage in agriculture, hunting and fishing, enjoying the outdoors. All of those things I see as a threat to Montanans, and I couldn't uh, go forward and imagine myself talking to my future grandchildren 
and trying to explain to them that back in 2012, I could have been part of making a difference with the knowledge that I had and didn't have the courage to step up and, and try to uh, uh, be a part of that change. Interesting. Um, I'm glad that you chose the word courage. I've been having conversations with some other friends of mine about what we see as wrong in the U.S. And this is friends that are far more left than I've ever been and friends that are far more right than I've ever been. And it all boils down to, I think, there's a lack of courage that's going on in the U.S. We um, are making a lot of laws based out of fears. We're making a lot of decisions in how we live our lives based out of fears. The whole thing with uh, Trayvon Martin down in Florida is completely a fear-based reaction, and it's because we're allowing people who are scared to be alive to make decisions. Um, so it's interesting that you said that. Uh, you, let's see, you moved here, obviously, as a child, grew up here in Joliet, and then lived in Laurel as an adult. You married your wife, Peggy, in 1980, is that correct? That's correct, yep. And then you have two children. Yes, indeed. And, and they're college age. They want, One has graduated with a mechanical engineering degree from Bozeman. Oh, awesome. And he is now working full-time on the campaign while he prepares to get married in May. And uh, so it was kind of a good transition. And, and he certainly knows he, when I first ran, he was uh, one year old. So he's been around politics for a long time. So he's a real asset. And then my daughter, Kendall, is also a Bozeman. And she's studying business administration. And so you've been involved in politics since your kids were very young, which it seems like a, a really tough gig to jump into. What was it like when you started, you know, or what was your first, you know, out foray into politics? Because I know you did the construction and whatnot. We'll talk about your business background in a minute. Right. And it was that construction that got me involved in politics. And, okay. And let's talk about it now. Because okay. you founded a construction firm yep. um, in 1978, Construction and Roofing, yes? That's right. Yep. And, and what was the business climate like? Back um, then, because that was a gas crisis. Uh, we had a, uh, a president very similar to what we had now, because it was Carter. Right. Um, what were you running up against? Well, and, and ironically, Montana was behind uh, having the effect of the recession. We were actually doing pretty good in Montana then, uh, with the exception we were seeing the very high interest rates, but business was going well. My wife and I had taken out some business loans when we were on the farm with... Uh, uh, several different entities that were up close to the 20%. I mean, it was crazy wow. times, but there were jobs. That's credit and, card rates. Yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty unbelievable. Um, and I don't believe anybody would have ever guessed that you could once again ever get a mortgage at 3% like you can now. That was not something that we ever thought was possible. But so we things were going along, and, and that's where the construction took off when I got involved in that. I had a lot of work, and uh, then we, we hit the recession in Montana in the mid-'80s, and it was much worse than, it's, than, it's, than it is now here in Montana. Um, home mortgages were much higher. The banks were, were closing, uh, literally. Uh, the savings and loan uh, issue, yeah, that, all of that was going on in the 80s, and... Uh, my wife and I, that's when we, uh, along with the construction, we started buying some properties that were, actually they were about giving them to us because of all the mortgages and they were run down and different things. And and uh, we bought several of them and, and borrowed at some of the high interest and, and survived that. And then it turned around quite well in the in the late 80s. But And then that's when I started trying to hire people to help me once again because it was taking off and having to deal with the workers' comp. And it was so incredibly high that I didn't feel like I could afford to hire some help. 
I talked to my state senator, Chuck Blaylock, about it. He told me it was my fault that I needed to learn how to bid my jobs better. I said, who's running against this guy? Because that was not the answer I wanted. <laughs> well, that said, doesn't seem like a worthwhile <laughs> answer for a politician to give. No, really. no, that's exactly right. And I remember clearly, and I have a lot of respect for Jeff Blaylock. Uh, he was a, a, a great mentor, ended up being, even though I was an opponent of his. But I ran against him. Uh, Laurel had never had a Republican before when I ran against him. And so people didn't warn me ahead of time that a Republican couldn't win. So my wife and I campaigned very hard, but ended up 101 votes short in uh, 1990. And, uh, but then came back four years later and Chet decided not to run again. And then we were successful and, and then ended up in term limited out as a state senator from Laurel. That's very cool. And it's kind of typical Montanan where it's like, if you tell me no, not only will I do this, but I'm going to go after you in order to get it done. Um, so good on you. <laughs> so you had the construction business. You bought a bunch of land. What other businesses did you get? I know you mentioned retail and... Right. Uh, while we were involved in a manufacturing business that's still in operation, we've sold it uh, quite a few years ago. Uh, it's called Big Sky Woodcrafters. We manufactured wood component parts for the trophy and awards industry, hmm. shipped all over the United States and two provinces in Canada. And uh, uh, we, also had the, we also helped develop a hotel in Laurel. Uh, um, and then the retail furniture store that we had called Laurel Furniture Outlet. And we had it for 11 years, and uh, we sold it uh, just a couple months ago so that I could be totally focused on the campaign for governor. Very cool. So you've had some really good successes, even through some hard times in Montana, so you do understand what that's like. What is the business climate like today? I mean, it's because you just you literally got out of business two months ago and strictly to run your campaign. You know, would you start a business in this in this climate? It's really difficult, particularly somebody starting out that doesn't have a, a, a lot of means that like my wife and I started out, it would be very difficult. It's very difficult to hire somebody. We went from zero employees to about 30 employees back to zero employees because of so many issues of hiring employees from high unemployment, high workers comp, uh, over-regulation, and when I go around the state, I often uh, go up and down the main streets talking to business people and consistently they tell me they wish they could hire another person uh, to help out their family business. But because of all the issues I just mentioned, they find it, if not impossible, very difficult to do so. And uh, to, to start up, the financing is, is very difficult. There are a lot of things that, uh, and then you're dealing with business equipment and and so it, it's a difficult business climate in Montana. Do you think it's more difficult now than it was? Yes, very okay. much so. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, I'm sorry, I've lost my place in my questions. Um, what would you say to people that are thinking of moving to Montana? Or, or more importantly, and the, you know, our biggest export is our students. We have great colleges and universities throughout the state. I work with several of them. And consistently they, the graduating class is basically they got a one-way ticket out of the state. But a lot of them want to come back. What would you say to those people, you know, those wonderful, wonderful people that we've raised and trained and educated? How would you, what would you say to get them back? Well, I have, I'm very optimistic. I see great hope to have them either come back or stay here in the first place. Both of my children want to stay in Montana. 
I believe Montana is so wealthy with its natural resources that that's the key to creating jobs. If we had a vigorous natural resource economy all across the state, not just the Bakken oil that everybody's talking about now, but the, the coal and the natural gas and hard rock mineral mines to the forestry in the, the western part of the state, every county could benefit by a, a vigorous natural resource economy. And then we have manufacturing that is a result of that. We have high-tech jobs as a result of that. We have service industry uh, as a result of that. Right. People at McDonald's in uh, the eastern part of the state are making really are good making money. Are making really good money. Exactly. Everybody benefits by it. And uh, so I just see tremendous opportunity. And it's not at the, at the detriment of our environment. I'm an environmentalist. I like clean air, clean water. I've not met anybody <laughs> that doesn't. Fish, right? Exactly. <laughs> I live here to fish and hunt and hike the mountains. But with the technology that we have, it's not the practices of the past. So we can we can vigorously extract our natural resources and have a very clean environment. In fact, I have found that the best way to clean up old habits is to have a healthy natural resource uh, environment. I point to the, the Golden Sunlight Mine over at Whitehall. They are actually taking tailings left from the, the turn of uh, the 1900s era and, and cleaning them up, pulling gold out of those tailings, making money for the truck driver that's hauling it to them. The Whitehall Mine is making money. Everybody wins and cleaning up past habits. So. I see that as a, a real alternative. I think right. that's so. You, but you're not interested in re resurrecting cyanide leach, leach mining, which is such a destructive. Well, it's not necessarily destructive. There is a lot of data out there that shows that it's a very safe process. The, well, the process isn't the problem. It's that it leaves around the slurry waste that hasn't. But been it taken doesn't. Care. That can be cleaned up. That's the point. It's it's being cleaned up in other states. It's utilized in other states. And uh, it's a very manageable uh, uh, technique to, to mine gold. And so I'm not, you know, I think if people are educated, I think it should be the people's choice. They're the ones that put the ban in. But I think if they're educated on the process, how it, how it breaks down, how it can be protected from getting, causing environmental hazards, that that shouldn't be just blankly taken off the table. Okay, that's interesting. Um, so you've obviously got the, the issues that you really are focused on. Um, do you want to go into those, or would you like to talk a little bit more about why you got into politics? Um, either one. Let's, um, let's do why you got okay. into politics. So you were working a business. You had a, a senator who, for whatever reason, <laughs> decided to not tell you that he could help, which I think is funny. Um, and then you jumped right into the Senate. You had never been involved in Laurel politics? Never. Had you ever been interested in it? Never. And, and so literally, it's that one moment in time when somebody said to you, well, learn to do your job better, and you just wanted to... Yep. Uh, pardon? <laughs> That's hysterical to me, because there are so many people that I've met, especially through the show, that, uh, you know, they, they were in politics because they had a cause. Yep. And it seems like your cause was, but this is wrong. And, right. and that's what it really boils down to, is that's that exactly. you, saw, you saw an injustice in the way government was working and you figured you could change it. Now, yeah. you got to the Senate, obviously in 95 with the first session, and 95 seemed like it was a pretty good session from what I can recall, because I wasn't in the state, but I didn't hear anything about it, and friends of mine that were haven't said anything. Uh, what, was the, what was the perspective 
of you as a freshman? What was it like that first year? Well, it's a learning curve that's straight up. It's totally vertical, and it didn't change for eight years being there. It's just an incredible learning process. It's also a very frustrating process. As a business person, I've always made decisions, get the job done, do it. And in the legislature, that isn't the case. It's, it's by design a very cumbersome, slow process. And so that's frustrating for individuals like myself that are, are doers. Um, from that, uh, you know, it, it's also a, a wonderful system. I mean, I, I believe it's the best in the world without a doubt. And uh, the people you meet was, was very rewarding. I, I'd always been a numbers person. That was what I uh, really focused on in a business. I think that's how you make a business successful is focusing on the numbers. And uh, so that's where I focused as a legislator. I was on finance and claims, and I was also a legislative auditor. And the uh, budgeting process for the legislature is very complicated, uh, very cumbersome, um, and, and I believe it could be much simpler so that it could be online, very transparent. Anybody can see how many paper clips a certain agency buys, and uh, it's not that. So that's going to be one of the goals because it literally took me uh, at least two sessions to really get a handle, probably all four, to really get a handle on, on how the system works and where all the dollars are going and how to find out where the dollars are going. So you were on, uh, hold on, I had a list. Did I keep the list? I, I know you said you were on finance, but then you were also on legislative office, natural resources, business and industry, and fish and game. And you were the vice chair on finance. Right. So what was... What exactly does the Finance Committee does do? Because pardon me as I screw up the English language for you. Um, a lot of people don't know. Like they hear finance and they immediately think, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the way most people are. They, they don't get too excited about the, the budgeting process. Uh, it's a few key individuals that seem to do that. But it's basically the appropriations. In the House, they call it the appropriations. In the Senate, they call it finance and claims. So it's the, it's the budgeting process. How do you spend the money? It's not how you get the revenue. That's taxation. Uh, but it's how you spend the money. And, uh, uh, and then legislative audit, it was really a good training ground because we audited not just fiscal but also performance. So we could, we could go into any department in state government and tell whether they were efficient. We could even do environmental or uh, um, uh, uh, heat type, you know, buildings. We could do all kinds of audits with our legislative auditors. And so we were in all areas of government. Did you ever go into ITSD? <laughs> uh, we, we did. Yep. There are some reports uh, that you could go back to. Oh, they're my favorite department <laughs> in the whole world. If you become governor, just put me in charge of it. I okay. just want it for a month. <laughs> um, so you've got a lot of background in how state government works, and you know some of the uh, obstacles that obviously are there that are put there for a reason. Uh, you were talking about them with how the process is put in there to slow down people so that you don't make the wrong decision and drive us all off a cliff. Um, although if you do get the herd mentality and a bunch of mobs or a mob in there, you can still do that. Um, what is it you hope to do as governor? You know, where you, you were successful. I'm assuming that you had several successful bills, mm -hmm. um, while you were in the legislature and you've decided not to switch and go to the house. Right. And so what is it that you think that you bring to the governor's desk that hasn't been there before? Well, I want a backbone. I think that leadership is, uh, we're at the time in our history for leadership with a backbone that will stand up and make the hard decisions. We have 
a unfunded public retirement program that's three and a half to five billion dollars short. Those are going to be hard decisions to make, but we can't keep kicking that can down the road. I think we're leaving our next generation both on a national level and on a state level an absolute mess. And that's why I'm so committed to not be part of a generation that is leaving this country and this state broke. Um, I believe that we need to have education reform. We need to have more choice for parents. We need to break the stranglehold that the unions have on the taxpayers. Uh, it's the union leadership, not the rank and file, that, that I believe is, is uh, destroying or our, our, our harming, I should say, our education system. The teachers are great. For the most part, they are wonderful individuals, but we have tied their hands behind their backs told them they've, they've got to teach a Washington, D.C. curriculum and system. We've given them all our social problems, and we've told them they can't discipline, and we expect a good result. So we <laughs> need to have more choice. And we have helicopter parents. Don't forget that. <laughs> it's a new term. I had no really? idea what it I was. I hadn't heard that one before. Uh, well, uh, I was actually, I volunteered at Capitol High. I'll give you a little background on that. And um, I was talking about this. There was a student that was in the class that I was volunteering with that was just nuts. And periodically, her mother would show up. And it wasn't unheard of. Like, this woman was around all the time. Well, she graduated and went off, and I asked about her a couple of years later. And um, the teacher that I was working with was like, no, she was. She went to MSU, and her mother would show up once a week and clean her dorm room. Hmm. I'm like, uh, what? <laughs> that's so well, amazing that's, to me. That, to me, is better than the other extreme which is parents don't participate see, in their it, raising at all. See, but I don't think that it's any better because they don't allow the child to learn anything. They just stand there and hover over the teacher and tell them they can't do that. Right. And that, you know, so the teachers got their hands tied at both ends of the spectrum and they end up with, well, I can't do anything. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think there's a lot of, uh, there is a lot of reform that could happen. I still can't believe how many school districts we have in this state. The state's big, but we don't need 500. Right. <laughs> I think that's a little weird. Yeah, well, you know, I'm not for closing small communities' schools because that yeah, is their community. But the administrative side of it, and a lot of that is caused because of all the mandates coming down from Washington, D.C. They need several principals. They need several superintendents. They need all of this because of so much paperwork and so much demand from Washington, D.C. If we get that, the, the parents and the students and the teachers in those local communities, they know how to deliver a good education system. We need to empower them again, not allow Washington, D.C. to dictate the course of our education. Very, very cool. Um, so you've obviously got the education that's a concern. Taxation is also a concern. What's, what's some of the changes that you'd like to see there? Well, I so totally believe that we could have a natural resource business climate that could generate enough money to totally eliminate the real estate tax, the state portion of the real estate tax, which is about oh, 20 to 40 percent of uh, the real estate tax that people pay, we're, we're driving people out of their homes because they can't afford their real estate tax. By doing that, we also get rid of the statewide um, appraisal system that is always an issue. We're trying to appraise properties at Big Fork uh, the same as properties in Circle, Montana, and it's very difficult. I mean, they're, they're totally different, so we're all the time changing that. And in the western part of the state, we've had... 
uh, we, we saw the, the increases in values in 2008, and that's what they based the appraisals on. Well, since then, properties have dropped by 30 to 50%, but yet they're paying those very high real estate taxes. So I'd like to get rid of the, the, the real estate taxes, or the state portion. It becomes then a revenue source for local communities and, uh, and, and more manageable. I believe we need, also need to get rid of business equipment tax, which is a deterrent to creating particularly manufacturing and high-tech jobs, heavy with equipment, and then also corporate income tax because we're driving the investors out of the state. We've already lost a lot of them because of our high corporate and uh, uh, income tax here in the state of Montana. That takes about, uh, round figures, about $500 million a year to do that we can easily get that from the revenue of natural resources. Uh, so, uh, and, and then you're creating more dollars from the manufacturing and the high tech and the service. I mean, everything is, is doing much better. Okay. So um, let's see. The state really functions basically as two different parts, as eastern and western Montana. Western has the, the tourism. Eastern has the uh, natural resources, at least at this point. So... How do you reconcile those two together with this tax plan? Because if what you're doing is removing the, the ownership tax, that takes it off of the western side. And you're putting it on the natural resources side, that's mostly in the east. So are we shifting the burden then? Yeah, no, I don't see that to be the case at all. We have natural resources all across the state that we need to get back in and, and with a healthy uh, a forestry plan so that we're cutting trees again and generating <laughs> getting rid of the from, beetle from kill that and getting rid of the beetle kill exactly oh. we also have a lot of hard rock mineral mines i was up to a mine up at libby a few weeks ago 20 years they've been trying to get that mine open they've proven the safe out of the water uh grizzly bear uh threats to to bull trout to they've gone through all of these studies and they still don't have it opened it's 400 approximate jobs high paying 70,000 to 100,000 dollar jobs up in Libby which is is hurting right now for jobs because they've lost so many so many others so i see benefits all across the state and not just eastern Montana. Okay. So what do you think about, i got to ask you this, and feel free to say you don't really want to get into it because it's not your cause, uh, the, the Keystone Pipeline. Oh, I support the Keystone Pipeline. I think that the state should work a coalition and, and take that issue away from the federal government if, if we and, and South Dakota and Nebraska and all the states involved got together and said, okay, we're going to put this pipeline through and here's how we're going to do it, that's how I think we need to get it accomplished. But in addition to that, I'm going to be pushing really hard to get a refinery built in, in Montana, North Dakota area. And I've already communicated with a North, or a, yeah, North Dakota governor candidate, and we've made a pact that we're going to push hard to accomplish that. And we're convinced that we can get that done. And then we're actually processing our crude and shipping finished products, and that's how we're actually going to reduce prices here in Montana, not shipping our oil out of country. Uh, good plan. Um, so, sorry, I've lost my place again. I, I love talking about some of this stuff, and some of it I don't want to bring up because um, I'm passionate about it in certain ways, and, and the show's not supposed to be about me. So, <laughs> kind of to uh, bear with me. Well, you can bit. tell I'm passionate as well. So you are, and, and I think that's great. So. Being from one of the smaller 
uh, towns, and obviously you're from eastern Montana. I'm, I'm much more from western Montana. I grew up in Helena. Um, what is it like when, I mean, you did the legislature in Helena, so you know what you're getting into with that, but what's it like knowing that you're going to have to give up four years of your life and be the center of politics in the state? Because while everybody says that Montana is very open and free, and we are, and we're still very much part of the frontier, and we have that attitude when it comes to our politics, there is no one on this planet more serious about their politics than a Montanan. And you can ask almost anybody, even people that are not in any way, shape, or form normally uh, involved in politics. They know who the governor is, they know exactly what's going on, and they know where his mansion is and have no problems going up and knocking on his door. So, it, See, I see that as a positive, though. I welcome that. I'm the only candidate that puts my cell phone number on all my literature. I have done so. I ran in 2004 also, by the way, and I came up a little bit short in that primary. Same cell phone number. I had it out across Montana at that time. I put it on my website, and I welcome people to call me, and I will be accessible as a governor that way as well. I find people very respectful. Now, there may be a few that will end up and abuse it, but I find that to be very rare. I would encourage people to stop by the house and, and, and knock on the door, and, and if I'm there, I'll have a chat with them. The office is obviously open. Uh, that's what's really nice about Montana. It's no big deal to know your governor. It's no big deal to know your legislators. It, uh, we're, we're really very, very small. We're a million people. And my goal when I started campaigning 20 months ago was to meet the one million Montanans. And I'm getting very close to that point. And, and only in Montana could you do that. Now, if I'd have been smart, I probably would have gone to Rhode Island because I wouldn't have to drive near as many miles. But uh, it's just been an awesome experience. And every I've been from Alzada to the Yak and every small community in between. And I can tell you that this state is full of wonderful people. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the old joke is Montana is... Uh, one medium-sized town with really, really long roads. That's right. Well, I like to tell people, you know, it, it's the reason I have over 70,000 miles logged is because there's a whole lot of cows in between each voter in Montana. <laughs> uh, that could be taken the wrong way, I'm sure. So you've been involved in a lot of community groups throughout your history. I know you, you did uh, work with the YMCA and you were on the board there. Um, and then the Lions, you were in the Laurel Chamber of Commerce. Um, you're also in the, the what I like to call the standard Republican uh, um, clubs, the NRA, the Laurel Rod and Gun Club. Actually, I don't know about the Laurel Rod and Gun Club. We'll come back to that in a second. Citizens for Balanced Use and the Montana Shooting Sports Association. The NRA, the Rod and Gun Club, and the Shooting Sports Association all seem very re uh, normal for Montanans um, on both sides of the aisle, which I think is great. Um, I know there's a lot of concern right now that uh, gun rights are somehow going to be restricted or, I don't know, sometimes I hear what people say and I'm just like, I don't know where you're getting that from. Perhaps tighten the tinfoil on your head, block some transmissions. Um, but being a part of those groups, and you hunt and you fish, and I'm assuming that you've, you've passed that on to your children, and uh, you've been running a campaign for 20 months. Have you been hunting? Have you been out fishing recently? Uh, not too much. We did go elk hunting. Uh, well, I should say we went walking in the woods because the elk are literally gone. The wolves have destroyed our elk hunting heritage, and uh, the moose are absolutely gone. We do see a few elk, but they've really been harmed. But the moose are literally gone. So that is a huge issue for me as well. I see my heritage as an elk hunter disappearing. 
So we spend a little bit of time uh, as a family still doing that. But right now, no, I've been pretty focused on just campaigning. We will go elk hunting again uh, this fall. I've always committed that no matter how busy I was roofing or in the manufacturing facility or campaigning, we took a couple of days off and, and went elk hunting. So we'll we'll do that again. Very cool. Did you go wolf hunting at all? Uh, well, I, uh, my son bought a license, and unfortunately we didn't see any while we were, were out there. They're, they're very elusive. There's no doubt about that. But, yeah, uh, I actually saw my first one a couple, I guess it was three weeks ago, on a drive to Bozeman, and they're massive. Yes, they are. I'm... Kind yes, of, I was kind of shocked. I was like, ah, that's as wide as yeah. the highway. Now, people that say, well, I don't know if it was a wolf or not. Well, if you don't know, it, it was wasn't. not. Yeah. Yeah. If because when you see it, you know it's a wolf. Yeah. So Citizens for Balanced Use. I, I didn't get a chance to look up what this group is. I don't know anything about it. I can kind of guess what it is, but tell me about it. Well, it's a, a Bozeman-based organization. There are several similar organizations across the state, and basically their goal is to have access to our public lands, to recreate with snowmobiles and four-wheelers and hiking and horseback. In other words, opening up our lands, our lands as Montanans to where we can utilize it. And that is what their focus, they have the, the president and founder, Kerry White from Bozeman, and he's just done a tremendous job in putting focus on and uh, uh, holding the feet uh, of the bureaucrats to the fire to why are you closing these roads? Why do we not have access to them? They're public lands, they're our lands, and, and that's the core of what they're, what they're doing. Well, that's cool. Um, I, I think that's interesting because I am, <laughs> you know, for growing up in Montana, I'm really a city kid. Like, if there's no pavement, I'm not a happy camper, um, which you think is kind of bizarre, but that's the way I am. But I still think that... Uh, if that's your gig, if that's what you want to do, I don't understand why anybody would stop you from doing it. So I, I think it's very bizarre to me that anybody who, you know, and there's a lot of people who say they're environmentalists, but they don't want humans to go anywhere into the woods. It's like, I don't get that. What are you preserving it for? Yeah. Exactly. For I mean, well, in, even if you're preserving it for something that is, you know, like a bear or a wolf or whatever, great. But why can't we still be a part of it? We can be. Absolutely right. You're, you're dead on there. We can coexist. Trust me. The wolves and the, the bears just move out of the way if you're lucky. And, uh, we can <laughs> and if you're not lucky, you're dinner. <laughs> you're so. Exactly. So we can coexist. Okay. So... Let's see. I've kind of run out of questions. I mean, it's really pretty basic. Um, there was... Oh, I know what there was. Okay, so back when you were in the Senate, let's go over this. There was the coal severance tax. Mm -hmm. What is that? Well, it's, uh, it's a tax that was implemented um, early on when we started extracting coal from Montana. Ironically, Montana put a very high severance tax in place. It's just a, a tax on every uh, ton of coal that's taken out of Montana. We put a severance tax of 30% on our coal, and we thought we were really smart. Um, Wyoming put a 15% tax on their coal. Well, guess where all the production went? It went to Wyoming. And uh, we have twice as much coal as, as Wyoming has, yet they extract 10 times the amount that we do. Well, if you've ever been to Wyoming, you'll notice every community has a brand new school. They have the best paved roads. They have the nicest rest stops on those paved roads. They have utilized their coal to benefit the citizens of Montana. Or of Wyoming, I mean. Where Montana, 
uh, has suffered. Well, we have since lowered the severance tax, but it, it still is a result of those early decisions that, that hampered the usage of our coal. And we have, we have more coal than we'll ever use here in the state of Montana, and we need to start utilizing more of it. In addition to the severance tax, when I talk about natural resources, a lot of people don't realize how many, how many dollars we're talking about. It's not just the severance tax. It's not just the production tax from oil wells. It's, it's not just royalty tax. Much of the, the minerals and the oil and the coal that we have is Montana-owned. It's literally billions of dollars. We own Otter Creek. We own a section in every township of, of Bakken Oil. Uh, we own much of the forests that, that exist that if we were cutting, we'd get the revenue directly. So it's an incredible amount of money that we could benefit by. So with that, I, I know one of the things that they talked about with land use, and this is, you know, obviously running for governor, you're going to be a part of the land board. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, or the board <clears throat> landowners, I'm not sure. Um, one of its goals is always to fund education. And you'd mentioned earlier that you wanted to uh, change the educational options in the state. How would you change them? I mean, aside from you know trying to get rid of some of the, the stuff coming out of Washington, but how would you change um, education in Montana? Right. What are your major goals there? Well, I want to I want to develop uh, options, choices. We need to have charter schools here in the state of Montana. Many of the other states enjoy charter schools, and we're seeing just unbelievable positive response to, uh, to the charter schools across the nation. And I'd like to see tax credits. So if a parent decides to either homeschool or send their child to a private school, that they can at least receive a tax credit. Right now, you pay for the full tuition uh, and you pay your full taxes. My wife and I, we homeschooled, we private schooled, and we ho uh, we homeschooled, private schooled, and sent them to public schools. So we we experienced all of them. We were blessed and we could afford to do that. But a lot of parents don't have that option and and so then they can't choose to send their child to, to some other alternatives that they may want to. So competition is a good thing. Good teachers should not fear competition and in fact the statistics show that they're rewarded when there's competition for good teachers in states that have the choices that I'm talking about. You know I often point out when I'm speaking to groups that we all choose who we drive or what kind of automobile we drive but yet we can't choose what school, I mean, the most important decisions that we make as a parent, we really have no options to, to uh, what, what we can choose our children, where they go to, to school at. So what about with uh, higher ed, with the increase in, <laughs> I'm going to start, I'm going to have a moment, you're going to have to deal with it, um, with the increase in tuition that uh, students are having to deal with, the outrageous, in my opinion, um, and many others, uh, amounts that we pay to uh, administration, the uh, folly that we have with um, a lot of what we allow uh, the stars on campus to get away with. I'm specifically referring to the recent University of Montana uh, sex scandals that have been going on, the rape issue. Um, how would you fix some of those? Well, those are complicated because in the Constitution, our university system is controlled by the Board of Regents. 
and uh, we have what's called lump sum funding. So the legislature gets to decide how much money they give the, the Board of Regents to spend, but they don't get much say on how it's spent, which can be really frustrating because as soon as they say, well, you've wasted a lot of money on administration or uh, buildings that perhaps weren't needed or whatever the case may be, then the Board of Regents can cut something that, that every student and parent would like to see and say, well, the legislature just didn't fund us well enough. And uh, so I think we need to get, get the control back more to the legislature on deciding how the university system is ran, um, uh, the details of, of the, yeah, the whole system, because, it, you know, we have, and, and I'll defend our university system in the sense that we are producing some well-educated individuals here that at least are prepared to receive some of the best-paying jobs because many of the companies around the, 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 the nation and the world are attracted to our oh, universities. And, and definitely, and, and, they recruit uh, from our colleges as well. Yeah. And, you know, the university system, it does have a lot of positives. I'm not, right. I'm not saying it's a big negative lump. I'm, but but yeah, you know, there's parts totally of it that drive agree. me up a wall. And I yeah. watch my friends who, you know, their parents are no longer around. They're, they're a little bit over the traditional age, but they're still in their 20s. And they're trying to get an education. And they're running up against its costs so much. And they're paying for so many things that they have absolutely no interest yeah. in. And uh, so... Uh, well, I, and I just think anyway. there's so many options. I, I was the legislator that carried the legislation. And I think it was 1997 that started the virtual campus, in other words, online campuses for the university uh, system in Montana. And I see there's other alternatives like that that I think we need to start implementing. We need to focus on that education and not the system so much. Uh, I'm a strong proponent of two-year and, and uh, community colleges and, and technology, uh, colleges of technology. In other words, not everybody should get a doctorate degree or not everybody should be an engineer. We need to have a uh, a very broad possibility for, for people to, exactly what you said, learn what they have interest in that will actually benefit them in the job market when they come, uh, when they get to that point in their life. Very cool. Um, so education, taxation, um, governmental waste seems to be a big focus for you. Are there any departments that you're really thinking need to, and obviously you were there for audits, so you have a better idea of it than I do, but what departments really need work? Virtually all of them. Um, the, the highway department, there is a tremendous amount of administration costs that are, are going into the, uh, that department. Corrections has become a huge bureaucratic uh, system that is not focused on successes, in other words, lowering recidivism rate, but more focused on keeping the beds full. and. Uh, uh, DPHS, I mean, they're, literally, there's none of them. We have grown government by more than double the rate of inflation every single year for the last 20 or 30 years, with no exceptions. In the last six years, we've grown state government by 40 to 50 percent. If you use, if you throw in the stimulus money, it's up in the neighborhoods of 70 to 80 percent. So, I mean, we have grown government beyond sustainable amounts, and yet, Montanans are not receiving uh, uh, any more for it. So 
we've got to go in. We're going to put policies. My lieutenant governor candidate, uh, Bill Gallagher, has a lot of experiences. He's currently a PSC commissioner. He has a law degree. He's been in business. He's uh, a teacher. He taught uh, civics over Plains, Montana. So he's got a well-rounded uh, experience base as well. But we will put together policies by which all those departments will operate. And I believe that we can do with a lot less personnel. In many of them, we can do with, a, you know, so much of it. Every time you add government, it's another restriction on people. I believe that people can be responsible for themselves. <gasps> oh, me, no, I we can't have that. Exactly. <laughs> and it's so frustrating. We don't need government telling us what kind of light bulbs we have. What kind of toilets we buy? I mean, it just goes on and on. Well, okay. I uh, See, the toilet thing, let's, you know, it's an odd discussion to have on a political show, but let's have it. <laughs> um, I do think that it was a good idea that they went to the low-flow toilets that actually work, not the low-flow toilets that don't. Say, most of them don't work. Well, so. but the, the ones that I've if seen you in flush them three times, it's not you effective. You save any water. Right. But the ones that do in one flush work great. But why shouldn't the market decide that? You have to pay for the water. So obviously there's an incentive to have a more efficient water toilet. The market will drive that, not government. But if the water is part of a municipal system, the government's already paying for it. No, they're not. The rate payers are paying for that. So the rates go up based on the amount of water that you use. And that's what should drive it. So now I'm punished by the people living next to me because they don't take care of their water, my rates go up? It, well, there, That no, seems like socialism, sir. Socialism. <laughs> no, just the opposite, because you lower your rates by putting in that low-flow toilet. So you're not paying as much as the guy that's next to you that, that was stubborn to do that. Well, I still think on some levels that that's okay. And this is this is where I, I, I differ from you my parents. You liberal socialist, you. I know. Well, I think it's okay that, you know, when you come to a decision, you go, this is the better way to do it. And from here going forward, it's like um, ADA compliance. I always think that, you know, yes, it's a pain to have to... Um, fix things to make them ADA compliant. However, when you're building something new, there's absolutely no reason for it to not be ADA compliant. Um, do it. it. It's just With common sense. Right. You know, make no. it so that, you know, if they're in a wheelchair, there's a ramp or an elevator so that they can get there. And yeah, it means that you have to spend a little bit more, but it also means that you haven't eliminated part of the population that is paying for access to public buildings. Eh, private buildings, different story, but whatever. Um, I still think there should be access. And part of that comes from I have friends that are in wheelchairs. I have friends that are deaf, some that are blind. And, you know, I, I constantly am running up to against in my, my real job, you know, how does this work for them? Does this, you know, like when I build a website, how does this work for somebody who can't see? You know, just close your eyes and use a screen reader. And if it tells me things and I can understand it and I don't use these very often, then I'm pretty confident that they can get through it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't require a lot of extra time. I mean, it requires a new test at the end, but it just requires a little more upfront planning to get that right. But I'm not saying that we go back to all of our historical buildings and revamp all of the hallways so that you can get an extra wide wheelchair through. You know, but there so are individuals that right. I understand. I, I, I think the they're crazy. Sense. I think most people are totally open. I mean, yeah, we all want to make it as much you know, because the the knowledge and the ability is there now to do it when we build a new building without driving up the rates 
the cost of building it by by fractions, really. But it's got to have common sense. Yeah, but then we've come to my favorite part of the show, um, where we common discuss- sense. Oh. No, no, I can't stand that. It's not around. <laughs> Nobody ever has any. Um, no, but it it is common sense. What I'm coming up to is um, my favorite part of the show: beer. Um, <laughs> um, every one of the guests that I've had on, I've talked about the various liquor laws in the state because they make me nuts because I, I, I don't understand them. I don't know where they came from. Actually, that's not true. I do know where they came from, and I still think they were wrong. But we've got a new issue that's come up recently, and this may affect you. I don't know if you're a fan of the cold smoke out of Missoula. Uh, Sorry, I don't drink much beer. Ah, well, it is, for those of us who <laughs> not, like... certainly not opposed to it, but I... <laughs> For those of us who enjoy craft beers made in Montana, Cold Smoke is one of the finest. Um, it's a great beer. It's made here in Missoula, and they're coming I have up. Heard of it? They are coming up against something that they never thought that they would hit, which is the ten thousand barrel limit to be a small craft brewery. Now, if they hit that limit, they have to either close their tap room or stop production. If they close their tap room, they lose one of the the best ways to reach their communities about, you know, this is what we're making, this is what we're doing, support us, we're a local business. And they do bring a lot of jobs and money to the area. Not just to Missoula, but to all of Montana as we, you know, sell more things and tax it and get it to be in place and happiness and joy. So we have this weird law in place. And I know why it's there. It's there from the Tavern Association. Delightful people who I want to smack upside the head most of the time. Um... How would you change that? Because and here's why. Here's why I bring it up because it is one of those uh, sticky wickets that people come up against because it involves alcohol, which many people are passionate about in both directions. Um, alcohol also naturally leads to um, driving issues with alcohol because, especially in the state where we have a ton of idiots driving under the influence, um, how do you deal with? We don't want to be the government that stops. Uh, business from being successful because the more we have businesses that are successful in the state, the more revenue they'll make, the more taxes we'll make from it. Life is better for everyone. Ta-da! Basic math. But you also don't want to loosen the restrictions so much that you end up with more people that are driving drunk, so you have to find an equal balance. But what we're finding now in politics, or at least what I'm seeing now, is that instead of being able to talk about this issue, because so many people are upset about drunk driving, anytime you bring up alcohol, it just becomes a non-issue. It has to go away. And medical marijuana is falling under this. Um, Assisted suicide, the right to die is definitely falling under this as well. It becomes, they become very hard topics, and right now, there is so much soundbiting and so much uh, just, no, 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 I don't know a word for it. I'm sure the Germans have like an 18-syllable word for it. But basically backbiting, backstabbing, and infighting that happen instead of a discussion. How do you approach those issues? Have I lost you yet? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad there was finally a question in there. Um, well, with common sense. And, of course, the other thing that you left out of the equation of the alcohol is the gambling connection. Oh, and yeah, ooh, that's the other thing. Why is it even attached? Uh, well, there again, historically, and uh, we, that's, been, <laughs> that's been part of the problem. So, or, and that's, that's, like you mentioned, Montana history. So we've... We've got to start addressing some of that. You know, there's several things that you hit on. I mean, the, that's separate from driving under the influence, totally. I believe that how we're addressing the, the DUIs in Montana, locking them up is not working. And so we need to, I believe that there's, there's technology that we can address that without tearing I, the families apart. I have a much better solution for that, but... <laughs> 
Well, there, there are solutions out there, because and, and, uh, now we lock them up uh, to try to get them off the roads, which only marginally help, and, and so then you tear the family apart, so then who's that hurt? Taxpayers. Right. they got to pay to lock up the person, plus they got to pay for the family that no longer has as a parent at home taking care of them. So the whole system needs to be revamped, so there's a lot of issues that you touched on. I'm a free market sort of guy, and uh, I think that a lot of that we've got to work back towards that direction. I'm also a personal responsibility person, so we've got to move back to, to, to that direction as well. Is it easy? No, it's not easy, because every time you do something, there's a winner and a loser. And, and, and uh, there's a whole stack of unintended consequences that exactly you run up Exactly right. That's what happens, and I learned that early on as a legislator, that you know, a lot of these feel-good bills that would come through, would there would be a negative impact to somebody. Okay, it felt really good to protect this person from whatever may be the discussion of the day, but you ended up and negatively affected somebody else. And if we'll get back to personal responsibilities, free market, uh, what made this country so absolutely wonderful, the most prosperous a wealthy, envied country in the entire world, if we'll get back to those values, then I see a very bright future. If we don't, we're going to continue on the, the path that we're going, a path that I believe is going over a cliff, and we're leaving the, the, the you guys, the much younger generation, uh, an absolute mess. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know how much younger I am than you, but... <laughs> uh, I would guess several years. <laughs> so... What else do you want to tell Montanans? We're, we're coming up on, I think we're coming up on an hour. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Well, as I yeah. mentioned earlier, uh, my goal is to talk with the one million Montanans. I, I like radio like this where we can have an uh, open discussion. I like the meet and greets. Literally every day we have two or three or four open meetings to where people can come and ask me questions just like you've done here today, Kevin. And uh, so, and the other way is to call me on my cell phone, as I mentioned. That phone number is 406-670-8318. And, of course, we have our website, and there you'll find my cell phone number as well, uh, as, and then also a lot of issue statements. And uh, we have the Facebook and the Twitter and all the different things that now is part of campaigns. Uh, but I want to meet everybody. I want to talk to them. Uh, answer their questions. I'm not everybody's candidate, but I want to make it clear where I stand on all the issues. And, and we're coming up to crunch time on the primary here. There's not a lot of time left. The ballots come out 30 days before the June 5th primary. So we're basically uh, about five to six weeks away from when people can start voting on the primary. And that's a very important race. There are dramatic differences between the uh, Republican candidates. There's only one uh, Democrat candidate, but they're, but they're Republican candidates. Technically, candidate. too. Yeah, technically. We can get into that, too. <laughs> uh, well, we can get the, into election law, but yeah, I got another hour. Right. I don't know if you do. But, uh, no, the uh, the Republican candidates, there's uh, there's differences in, in uh, the experiences that we've had, the uh, mindset uh, that we have. For the most part, uh, you know, we... The, Voters of Montana have an option of either electing in the primary a, a, uh, a party inside Washington, D.C. mentality candidate or one with agriculture, small business, legislative, family man. And uh, they have a clear choice and, and can research that and, and hopefully 
make the right choice because I obviously come with that agriculture business legislative family history. So just to recap, you do have Facebook. I will include links to all of this in the show notes for those of you who don't know what that is. You can go to politicticboom.com and look for Ken's episode and uh, you will find a full post with links. You will have uh, your website, your Twitter, your Facebook links. Um, do you have a donation page on your Absolutely. website? Yep. Okay, we'll, we'll definitely put that on up Facebook as a and link. the website. Okay. And uh, we'll put your phone number, which will be the first, so that you can call him directly from there if you'd like. And links to everything else that we've discussed in the show as well. So if there's anything else? Well, I think that's great. We've pretty well covered it. And, and if your listeners have any more questions, they certainly know how to get a hold of me now. <laughs> Definitely. Thank you very much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. Politics and film.